True Blue football fans in Baltimore still grieve when they recall March the 28th, 1984. On that snowy night, the unthinkable happened. One of the NFL's most storied teams, the Colts, snuck out of town in the middle of the night. The Colts. They, they were a team of football greats. John Unitas, Raymond Berry, Lenny Moore, as well as the legendary coach, Don Shula, were all the Baltimore Colts. Yet under the cover of darkness, Colts owner Robert Ursay hired the Mayflower Moving Company to clean out the team's offices and then to drive the equipment to Indianapolis. The NFL's perennial powerhouse skipped town. Ursay's clandestine operation to relocate the Colts was an attempt to avoid the negative firestorm that came later from the Baltimore media. Following the Colts' infamous move to Indianapolis, Ursay said, People of the press were hounding my family for two years, and I wasn't about to take any more hounding. Well, the Colts were dogged out of Baltimore. In a sense, this is why Paul and his pals left Thessalonica. Paul had spent just three weeks in the city, and his time there had been extremely successful. Yet, like the Colts, Paul left town to avoid a firestorm of hostility. Acts chapter 17 tells the story. When Paul first arrived in this Greek city, he went straight to the Jewish synagogue. You see, this was the pattern that Jesus had modeled. To the Jew first, then to the Greek. Paul reasoned with the Jews there from the Old Testament. Their prophets had predicted that the Messiah would die, then rise again. In light of recent events, who could this be but Jesus? After just three Sabbaths, some of the Jews believed. But Paul made his biggest inroads among the local Greeks. And especially among the desperate housewives of Thessalonica. That's right. Acts 17 verse 4 tells us, A great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Apparently, there were Greeks in Thessalonica who had tired of their religion's polytheistic nonsense. I mean, these folks recognized the Greek pantheon of gods as silly superstition. They were seeking truth. And so they came to the synagogue of the Jews for answers. Hey, at least the Jews had narrowed it all down to one God. But when Paul preached Jesus, it all made sense. It clicked. They could see that the predicted Messiah was none other than the carpenter from Nazareth. Thessalonica was a place where the good news had traveled fast. But this is where the plot thickens. For in verse 5 of Acts chapter 17, we're told, But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious. You see, Paul had gathered more converts in three weeks than the Jewish rabbis had in 30 years. The Jews in Thessalonica became jealous. Paul's success had angered them. And so the rabbis, they hired a few local thugs, and they stirred up a mob. They stormed the house where Paul was staying. Thankfully, Paul wasn't there. But they grabbed the owner of the house. They had poor Jason arrested. And they charged him with harboring a criminal. And what was Paul's supposed crime? Well, the Jews said that he had violated Roman law 
by encouraging people to bow to a king other than Caesar. This was enough to set the whole city in an uproar. Everyone knew if word reached Roman officials that this kind of thought was being espoused in Thessalonica, there would be dire consequences. Economic sanctions might be imposed, even martial law. Oh, it had been a crazy few days there in Thessalonica. And you got to love the unintentional compliment that Paul's enemies pay to him. For when the Jews and their lynching mob try to justify to the officials about dragging an innocent man out of his own house, they explain to the town council by saying, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Isn't that great? Paul and his pals had flipped the world topsy-turvy. Christianity wasn't just a Jewish phenomenon, nor was it just a Greek curiosity. It had taken the whole world by storm. Apparently, there wasn't a village in the Mediterranean world that wasn't interested in the power and the beauty of the Christian message. I like how one man put it, the gospel faithfully preached meddles with everything else on earth. Did you know the gospel, it critiques every political thought and every social structure and every lifestyle option comes under scrutiny by the gospel? The gospel wiggles into every heart. It gets under everybody's skin. There's not a crevice or an opening that the gospel doesn't feel. Its ramifications are so far-reaching. The gospel changes people and marriages in relationships, and communities, and cultures, and even nations. The gospel will turn your world upside down if you trust its message. Well, finally, this wild day in Thessalonica, it ends when Jason posts bond and he heads home. But it was obvious now that Paul's future in the city was limited. He was a wanted man. It was best he leave quickly and quietly. And so verse 10 of Acts 17 tells us, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, where the people were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And so like the cults, in the middle of the night, under the cover of darkness, Paul and Silas snuck out of town. The Christian cults moved from Thessalonica to Berea. In the days to come, though Paul had been run out of town, his heart kept running back to these Thessalonians. He had left behind a strong church. He'd been with them a paltry three weeks, but it hadn't taken long for the power of the gospel to have its effect. A healthy church had been born. And yet because of the brevity of his visit, there was much that Paul didn't get an opportunity to explain. He felt that he had left these believers under-equipped. And so to shore up what had been lacking in his discipleship of the Thessalonians, Paul sent Timothy and Silas, his two sidekicks, back to the city of Thessalonica. In the meantime, he departed for Berea and then on to the classic city, the great city of Athens. He probably went there to celebrate a big bulldog victory. I'm not sure. Six months later, Timothy and Silas rejoined Paul. Now Paul is in the Greek Isles. He's at the port of Corinth. His trusted assistants have returned to him. They've reported on the status of the church there in Thessalonica. And in response from Corinth, around the year 51, 52 AD, Paul sits down with quill in hand and he pins a letter to the church 
to the church of Thessalonica, to the church he knew only briefly, but that he loved very deeply. First Thessalonians begins, as does most ancient letters, with a signature. In antiquity, letters came in the form of a scroll. So if the signature was at the bottom, you'd have to unroll the whole document just to see who it was from. And so the ancient letter writers, they made it easier for us. They were always careful to pin their name first. And so here it reads, Paul, Salvanus, which was a Latin or Roman form of the Hebrew Silas, and then Timothy. These are the authors of the letter. Silas was Paul's companion on his second missionary journey. He had left with Paul from Antioch. Timothy had joined them while in Lystra, there in Asia. The Thessalonians were probably more familiar with Timothy and Silas than they were with Paul. They had certainly spent more time with them. But he writes, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, today, 2,000 years later, Thessaloniki is still a well-known Greek city. In fact, it's the second largest city on the island. Thessaloniki has a population today of well over a million people. It's one of the few biblical cities to survive until modern times. In the first century, it was an important Greek city because of its excellent harbor. Its original name was Therma, from the hot springs in the area. Perhaps Thessaloniki's most valuable natural resource was its location. It was situated right on the Ignatian Way, the great road that linked Rome to the east. It was said of the city, it lays in the lap of the Roman Empire. Prior to Paul's visit to Thessaloniki, the city had been steeped in paganism for 400 years. That that made it more astonishing. What a testimony it was to the power of the gospel that after just three weeks among them, Paul was able to now write to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. After just three weeks, a church had grown up where paganism had abounded. And here again is Paul's customary greeting. Grace to you and peace. Grace, the Greek word charis, was the typical Greek salutation. Of course, when a Hebrew approached someone, he'd use the welcome shalom or peace. Paul now combines both Greek and Jewish greetings And he dips them in caramel, like apples that get dipped in caramel. That's what Paul does. He takes these two words and he dips them in thick, rich, tasty theological meaning. And he begins his letter as the Thessalonians began their life in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A conversation occurred on a bus one day. A woman was immersed in a religious book when the person next to her He asked her, he said, what are you reading? She said, well, it's a book a friend of mine gave me. She said it changed her life. Oh, yeah? What's it about? It was obvious that the lady had just started the book because she had to flip open and she started to read off the table of contents, the different chapter titles. She said, well, it's about discipline and love and grace. Well, that's when the stranger stopped her. He asked, he said, what's grace? The lady answered, I don't know. I haven't gotten to grace yet. And this is the problem with many Christians today. For some reason, they haven't gotten to grace. I don't know why. 
Grace is the great gift of Christianity. In the Christian life, God's grace is first base. In some ways, I understand our deficiencies involving grace. It's such a foreign concept to us. You know, the world around us is so full of ungrace. From an early age, most of us were loved with strings attached. Love was conditional. It was based on our pedigree or our behavior or our compliance. Love had to be earned, but not grace. Grace is love that we can never earn or deserve. Grace is an exclusively Christian virtue. Only God loves this way. Only a God of grace could have dreamed up an idea so liberating and so revolutionary. God handles people with grace gloves. Receive his grace in the person of Jesus and there are no other conditions. His love is full and free. In contrast, the world in which we live is all about performing and achieving and carrying your weight and measuring up. There's little tolerance for failure. Oh, grace is just the opposite. Under grace, Jesus carries our weight. And he measures up. And he performs and he achieves. All we do is ride on his coattails. And when we fail at that, his grace is even sufficient to forgive us of our sins. Hey, our standing with God, even our fruit, the fruit that we bear, is the result of God's grace. It's true, the Christian life is designed for grace to come first. You need a firm confidence in God's grace or everything else in your Christian life will grow crooked. You won't get it. You'll live confused and frustrated. You see, the Christian life is no sweat. Jesus did all the sweating for us. Our job is to rest in Him. Miss Grace, and you'll want to relate to God in the way you relate to your boss at work or your credit score or your coach or some demanding spouse, or a hard-to-please parent, you'll always be under the gun. You'll be plucking the strings left and right, and you'll never know God's peace. This is why Paul is very, very intentional. It's always grace, then peace. In verse 2, Paul begins the body of his letter. He says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Remember, Paul had just met the Thessalonians, but he had seen God at work in their life. The transformation that had occurred in such a short time was a testimony to the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. The report that he had received from Silas and Timothy had only reiterated the legitimacy of their faith, and Paul now thanks God for the Thessalonians. Even though he had left them abruptly, he had also supported them continually in his prayers and then he recalls what their early faith looked like and how beautiful it was he says remembering without ceasing your work of faith labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father the believers in Thessalonica were really a model church they brought Paul great joy you know there were some churches that troubled Paul <laughs> The Corinthians, man, what a bunch. They were misfits. They were mischievous. They were the Christians gone wild of the ancient world. That's what they were. Paul referred to the Galatians as my dear idiots. You can only imagine what they were about. 
the Colossians, they were gullible to false doctrine. Like a big mouth bass, they just bit the lies, hook, line, and sinker. But the thought of the Thessalonians brought nothing but joy to the mind of Paul. Paul notes three outstanding qualities this young church possessed. Their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. Author R.C. Lucas, he calls faith, hope, and love apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. Whenever the apostles wanted to describe healthy, growing, vibrant Christians, they always referred to their faith, hope, and love. Notice Paul remembers first their work of faith. In James chapter 2, verse 26, we're told that faith without works is dead. A faith that isn't active, a faith that doesn't roll up its sleeves to act, doesn't really believe. It's not a real faith. But the reverse is also true. Works without faith is also dead. Just doing stuff for God is of no value unless your effort is coupled with faith. God's work done in our strength will come up short. This is why we need his power. We should always serve God with faith, with an anticipation that he'll work through us. That he'll take our five loaves and our two fish and use them to feed 5,000. We need faith in God's ability to multiply our meagerness. Oh, they had works of faith. And then second, Paul remembers their labor of love. When Paul started the church in Thessalonica, he had a nest full of eager believers. I mean, these guys, they wanted to teach Sunday school and usher and play on the worship team and clean up the building. But here's the kicker. It wasn't because Paul promised them free donuts and coffee in the brook. That's not why they were eager to serve and to labor. No, no, holy donut, no. It was because they loved Jesus. That's why they wanted to serve. It's because they loved people. That's why they wanted to serve. The believers in Thessalonica were motivated by love. Theirs was a labor of love. I, I like what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ constrains us. You know, some folks shoot from the hip, but the Christian always shoots from the heart. It's the love of Christ that moves us. You should never find a believer just going through the motions, just serving out of duty. A Christian's labor is spurred on by love. And then notice third, the believer's patience of hope. You, you know, for years, I watched my dad. He endured work-related difficulties. He turned down other job offers. He saved up unused vacation days. And why? Well, it was because he was getting ready to retire. A future hope helped him endure his daily stress. And you see, this is how you live the Christian life. What sustains us in the storm? What causes us to resist the devil's temptation? What prompts us to sacrifice a temporary pleasure for the promise of a better reward? Why do we do these things? It's our hope in heaven and in God's blessing and in God's faithfulness. It's, it's a patient, plodding, waiting, enduring hope. Hey, hope is our only hope. In the tough times, don't panic. Don't say, oh, here we go again, and capitulate to those feelings of hopelessness. No, have an enduring, battling, overcoming hope. Have the patience of hope. That's what the Thessalonians had. 
They had all three. The work of faith, the labor of love, the patience of hope. And to Paul, this was proof of God's work in their lives. He writes in verse 4, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. The Old Testament reserved the term beloved of God for a special few. But in the New Testament, everyone who's in Christ is given this special status. Did you know this morning that you are the beloved of God? You know, there's no such thing as a second-class Christian. Unlike the U.S. Airways flight, the flight to heaven is never divided into coach and first class. We all arrive on the flight to heaven, but we all arrive first class as beloved brethren. I love Paul's gracious heart here. He's known these folks for just a short time. Remember, he was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He'd spent his whole life in temples and yeshivas and synagogues and worshiping God. These Thessalonians, they were Greek. They were pagans. They'd spent their whole lives in brothels and bathhouses and before idols. Paul and the Thessalonians came from radically different backgrounds. And yet, notice how he calls them. He says, oh, you beloved brethren. How amazing is that? But such is the power of the gospel. You see, what happens to us in Christ, the status we receive, the glory we share, the love we've been shown, obscures everything else in our lives that might divide us. This is why in Christ, polar opposites, even mortal enemies, end up beloved brethren. And notice what makes this possible, verse 4. Your election by God. Now you should know that the Bible teaches what appears to be two seemingly contradictory doctrines. The Bible teaches predestination on one hand, and it teaches man's free will on the other hand. God chooses, but man has a choice. God elects some to be saved, and the saved elect God. So, which is it? Well, the Bible, the biblical answer is both. You see, the Bible's clear. Ephesians 1, 6 and a host of other verses, it teaches us that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. You've been chosen by God. Yet when you study the life of Jesus and his interactions with people, every time Jesus offered eternal life, he made it a matter of that person's own choosing. The woman at the well had to decide whether she wanted to drink of that living water. The rich young ruler, he faced a choice of whether he wanted to sell all that he had to follow Jesus. Nicodemus was told, whosoever believes will be saved. Jesus' own disciples had to take up their cross and follow him. They had to make a choice. You see, when Jesus encountered folks, he required them to choose. But as soon as they chose to follow him, he assured them that God had chosen them. Understand, we get in trouble trying to reconcile what God never bothers to reconcile. Apparently, getting it all figured out is not God's priority, not as much as us having faith and trust in Him. That's God's priority. I've heard it explained like this. Try to explain election and you'll lose your mind. But try to explain it away and you might lose your soul. I believe in both. This is what the Bible teaches. It presents election as a comfort to us, not a cop-out. 
You, can't, you can never say, oh, well, I was never, I was never chosen. Well, maybe you weren't, but it's because you didn't choose. The Bible said, whosoever will may come. You see, salvation is like a two-edged coin. From one viewpoint, it's, it's all up to us. You better choose correctly. But from God's perspective, it was all up to Him. He's the one that chose us. You know, when we get to heaven, we're going to look up, and on top of the gate leading into heaven, it's going to say, whosoever will may come. And then when we go through that gate, we turn around and look at the backside, it's going to say, chosen before the foundation of the world. Hey, here's what God's election of the Thessalonians meant to Paul. He had spent just three weeks with these folks. Not, not, not a long time by anyone's standards. I mean, it takes more time to grow tomatoes. Paul's hoping here to grow Christians. Yet his confidence is not in his own efforts. Though he had only known them three weeks, God had chosen them before the foundation of the world. God has something at stake in these Thessalonians. He chose them, and he will complete his work. This is what makes me so hopeful about you. You may be new to Calvary Chapel. Perhaps you've only been coming for three weeks. It takes far more than a month to get grounded in the faith. But you know what I know? God is at work in you. From the day you were born, he's been working in your life. He chose you before the foundation of the world. You're his project, man. And God will see to it that what he starts, he finishes. Paul remembers his time there in Thessalonica, verse 5. He says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. You know, prior to Paul's visit to Thessalonica, he had been in another Macedonian town, the town of Philippi. And their miracles had accompanied his ministry. Remember, he had delivered a slave, girl from a, a, a slave girl from a demon. After being falsely accused and illegally beaten, an earthquake had shaken the prison that was holding Paul. You remember, bars rattled and locks sprung open and gates unhinged. A jailer was even saved. No doubt, word of such phenomena had spread. It had paved the way for his arrival there in Thessalonica. You know, I suppose that after a few miracles, people tend to give you a little bit more attention, I would suppose. The supernatural can garner a little more interest. It can draw a crowd. Rubberneckers and ambulance chasers all come out for a miracle. But I like what Paul points to as a source of, of much assurance among the Thessalonians. It was the character of the messengers that had brought credibility to the message. Paul reminds them, you know what kind of men we were among you. And this is what is so needed in the church today. Sure, we'd love to see more miracles, but far more important are more men and pastors with integrity. There's a troubling disconnect in today's church. We have separated the message from the messenger. We have a lot of characters on the stage without a lot of character. We got pastors with bling, man. Righteousness is just not as sexy. Here's a major problem. Churchgoers today are more attracted to ability than integrity. It's the entertaining personality. It's the clever presenter. It's the celebrity spokesman that draws a larger crowd than the faithful servant. This is a shame. 
Hey, just because a guy puts buns in the seats doesn't qualify him to lead. Not in the church of God. Paul hadn't been in Thessalonica very long. But for the time that he was there, he lived among the people. They had witnessed his life firsthand. How he treated people and how he handled money and how he carried himself around town. Always remember, the gospel of God's grace is truth regardless of who presents it. But it is always easier to believe when the messenger is believable. Notice verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord. You know, at first glance, that sounds a bit arrogant on Paul's part, doesn't it? You became followers of us and of the Lord. But, But I mean, think it through for a minute. When a new believer comes to Christ... How much of the Bible does he really know? Probably not much. Not, these guys had only been under Paul's discipleship for three weeks. The new believer's immediate influences come from the Christians around him. That's why whether we like it or not, folks do follow us and the Lord. They do. They have to initially. And this is why we all need to live a godly, faithful life. We're being watched. Newer Christians are watching you. They're learning from you. Never shrug your shoulders and say, better do as I say and not as I do. Oh, my. That's a cop-out. That's the kind of attitude that gives Christianity a black eye. When we call ourselves Christians, people have a right to expect something from us. I like this little rhyme. You're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and by the words that you say. Others read that gospel, whether faithless or true, say, what is the gospel according to you? Paul continues. He says, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia, who believe. In a very short amount of time here, the church in Thessalonica had gained a regional influence. They developed a reputation. Thessalonica was a city within the province of Macedonia. Acacia was the province to the south. Paul was writing from Acacia there in Corinth. Apparently, the Thessalonians, they were still the buzz 200 miles away. This was a happening church. It was a divine hot spot. And notice what had caught everybody's attention. He says, they received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, the hostility against Christianity had been tense there in Thessalonica. When the Jews arrested Jason, they drugged the guy through the streets. All he did was offer Paul a room. They were treating him as if he was Macedonia's most wanted. The church in Thessalonica was made up of wartime babies. As in London in World War II, Germany's bombings didn't stop babies from being born. And so it was in this church. It was still growing while under attack. But even their much affliction couldn't overshadow or snuff out the joy of the Holy Spirit. And guys, this is what makes Christianity so unique, so powerful. Our faith doesn't promise us the absence of conflict. To the contrary, In John 16, verse 33, Jesus guaranteed us, in this world, you will have tribulation. Tough times will come. If they persecuted Jesus, they'll do it to us. 
If what you're looking for is a smooth ride in calm seas, don't sign up for the Christian cruise. Christianity is about peace and joy in the midst of conflict. The Holy Spirit brings a supernatural joy, independent of circumstances. I love how Jesus finishes his promise there in John 16. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Despite the trouble, be of good cheer. Take your joy from Jesus. You know, I've heard it put this way. Jesus promised three things to his disciples. First, they would be ridiculously happy. Second, they would be completely fearless. And third, they'd be in constant trouble. (laughs) Paul says in verse 8, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Literally, a trumpet blast has carried the news of their triumphant faith. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. And I love what Paul says next. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Their lives said it all. Even though they had been Christians just a short time, everyone knew that their faith was real. I heard of a renowned chef who had resigned his prestigious post. He worked as the personal cook for the royal family. And when asked why he quit such a lucrative position, this is how he replied. He said, when dinner is good, the boss never praises me. And when it's bad, he never blames me. It's just not worthwhile. Isn't that interesting? When it got right down to it, the chef didn't care whether he was praised or blamed. He just wanted what he did to matter. And this is what the Thessalonians had found in Christ. All of a sudden, their empty lives now counted. They carry great weight. Though they were under the gun, their persecution came with great joy. They were being a witness for Jesus in their own town, among their friends, even throughout the surrounding regions. You see, in the beginning, Paul may have had to leave this church in the middle of the night, but there was nothing shady about the lives that these people were now living. In the kingdom of God, the church at Thessalonica was a bright spot on the map. I hope the same can be said for Calvary Chapel. Do we rest in God's grace? Are we known for our work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope? Do we consider one another as beloved brethren? Do we receive the word even in the midst of affliction? Are we characterized by the supernatural joy of the Holy Spirit? And does the life we live speak louder than the words we say? Paul slept out of Thessalonica on a dark night, but this church he left behind became a bright light. May you and I also be a bright spot in a dark world.